Shalom, shalom, and welcome to Bet Ariel Wednesday Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. It's always a blessing to meet, to study His Word. And today's text on Deuteronomy is centered on chapter 14, where God confirms His eternal election of Israel and how He promises that He will guard and protect her as His own personal treasure. And this section is also for all believers today because the same principle applies to our election, our eternal salvation, Jews and Gentile believers in Yeshua. We are all, by the way, his personal treasure. The second part of chapter 14 brings us to the kosher section of Deuteronomy, uh, where the, the foods Israel were allowed to eat and what they were not allowed to eat and why actually the choice of these foods. And how does it relate to us today? Here too, this is the, the, there's a principle which links each of these laws and travels through our times, the principle actually is holiness and sanctification, something we will look into together. But before we do, as we usually do, let us answer one question Sharon will read for us. When speaking of salvation and God's offer of it, we have been taught that each one, perhaps even to their very last breath, can be forgiven and saved. What then is the blasphemy against the Spirit? And who are those who commit it? And why is there no forgiveness for it? Thank you. See, this is a, an important and disturbing question for many. Let me begin by saying that this sin cannot apply to believers. This sin can only be committed by those who rejected Yeshua after they have known him and, and have been and many times over confronted with him. Let us see how it is presented to us in the scriptures. The passage is found in Matthew 12, 31 to 32, where Jesus says himself, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. What, what then is the blasphemy against the Spirit, and why is this sin unforgivable? The, the context in Matthew reveals to us the reason. Let us begin with chapter 1 of Matthew <clears throat> and climb our ways to the final sayings that we find here in chapter 12. Beginning chapters 1 and 2, Yeshua came really as a baby, a more humble and lowly approach one can never find. The, the, the Almighty God did not come on a white horse from heaven threatening judgment and death. He made himself, like we read in Philippians, of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of man. And so even now, we can come to him in all confidence and not in fear of condemnation. After this, in Matthew, we read in chapters 3 to 4 about the Messiah as a child and how he was being prepared for his ministry with a baptism, with a temptation. From chapter 5 to 7, he, Yeshua, addresses the population. He gently appeals to the people's heart, intelligence, and reason, that, that, so that they will recognize the goodness of God. So th this was done during the Sermon on the Mount. 
Then, beginning in chapter 8, Jesus showed them his miraculous powers with signs they had never seen before in history. But all this was to no avail, at least for the majority. And when we arrive in chapters 11 and 12, we see the final rejection of the Messiah of Israel by the religious leaders. Yet they were the teachers of Israel who were the guardians of the word of God. It is in chapter 12 where they pronounced their final assessment and condemnation of the Messiah, saying, this man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the rulers of demons. These were their last words, words which changed the course of history for Israel and also changed the way the Messiah acted and spoke from this point on in the Gospel of Matthew. This was the final rejection, called in Matthew 12.31 the blasphemy against the Spirit, which amounts to refusing these incessant appeals of salvation which are present from the very creation of man. The primary group that is in view here, again, are the religious leaders of the first century, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and all the fringe groups who had the Bible in hand and which contains all that we need to know about the Messiah of Israel. But when the teacher of the righteousness, as the Messiah was called, came, they refused him. Yet he did not come as a surprise to them. Behind him were not only his words, his miracles, but also a long trail of over 100 powerful prophecies of his first coming in the Tanakh. Yet they refused them and thus committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he said, therefore, I say to you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven men. Now, why did Jesus speak of the Spirit himself? And he added, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, he will be forgiven. Why the Holy Spirit as opposed to the Son of Man? Well, they mistreated, they persecuted the Messiah when he was on earth. And while many... Uh, you know, do the same even today with their words. This he will forgive and thank God for this. But the Holy Spirit ministry is different. The very task of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to the Messiah. He is the one who leads man and woman to God. He is the last chance, the last link to heaven. And this is well explained in John sixteen eight concerning the work of the Ruach HaKodesh. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is what he does today. He convicts, uh, that, that is, he exposes, he explains, he reasons with the individual to bring him or her to a saving knowledge of the Messiah. This is a great gift from God to have his own spirit to reason with us. He does so in the hearts of men today as he did to the creation which was covered in darkness if you remember in genesis 1 in the same way he separates darkness from light in the mind of the people this is when they accept or refuse the messiah so the spirit was not <clears throat> has not finished his work of creation he is still hovering over his this fallen world in order to lead men and women to light and a refusal of his gentle work in the heart of men will end up to committing the sin against the Holy Spirit. 
What about today, now? How, how can someone actually commit the blasphemy against the Ruach HaKodesh? The sin and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can only be committed by those who heard the Word of God, understood it, and saw His mighty power, but at the end, not only rejected Him and left, but insulted Him and still insult Him and publicly proclaimed that in fa- their unfaithfulness and encourage others to do so. These are the apostates, but also those who, like many of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, handled the Word of God just to deny His author, Yeshua. Of these are the many calls cults that see that we see today however there's a big difference and i want to stress this between those who backslid and go away for a while and those who make it their mission to speak against god and his people these are addressed in the book of hebrews chapter 10 29 for instance of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be brought thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. These then are the apostates. An apostate is one who comes again close to God, understands salvation, knows and even experiences the Spirit, but refuses to accept the offer of God and lives. Uh, These are not regular and believers. They came inside the flock, and we are told in our text that they insulted the Spirit, something which is like the blasphemy against the Spirit. They even trampled the Son of God underfoot. The word trample underfoot is one word, and it means exactly that, to step on something or someone we despise. At times, for these people, it's preferable to stay out of the church because the church could be a place to bless and to condemn as well. And apostasy is really the sin of the demons. These were up there and saw the works of God more than any individual, but they rebelled against their own creator. Okay, this is perhaps the main reason why they cannot be saved, for there is no salvation after apostasy, for it is then impossible to renew them again to repentance, as we read in Hebrews 6, 9. So let us remember that a believer in Yeshua has passed this point of committing the sin of the Holy Spirit or against the Holy Spirit. But of those who constantly refuse to consider and accept Yeshua as their personal Savior, their choice is respected. But it leads to the blasphemy against the Ruach HaKodesh. Let us now go to our study of this great book of Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 14 in your handouts. It's also page 14 on the top. We begin to read verse 2, which speaks of Israel as a special treasure to God. We follow the history of this word treasure and found its first mention in Exodus 19.6, which lays out the reason for the election of the nation of Israel. She will be a nation of priests, that is, she will represent the nation to God and vice versa, God to the people. And indeed, as Yeshua said, salvation is from the Jews. And in the process, in this difficult, of this difficult operation, she will always be this special treasure to God. The Hebrew again word for treasure here is segula. It speaks of one's very own possession. It refers, it refers that is to valuable property such as silver and gold. 
And beyond calling Israel his treasure, the Lord adds something even more special for Israel. There's something new we find here in Deuteronomy right in verse 1. The opening words where the Lord says, You are the children of the Lord your God. <clears throat> for the first time in the scriptures, a people are called children or sons of Jehovah Elohim. This new title in the opening verse of chapter 14 speaks of this new relationship that began when God chose Israel. And like the angels who are called sons of Elohim, Israel is called the sons of Jehovah Elohim. The name Jehovah is here added because it is the name which speaks of the covenant God in whose image we are created. The basic meaning of this name is in God's relationship to Israel and humanity in general. Elohim then portrays a strong God who is feared. Jehovah <coughs> portrays him as close and intimate with men. Now, how come angels are called sons of God? Five times in the Hebrew scriptures, we read of the title sons of God, Bnei Elohim as a designation of angels, and the reason is because they are created directly by God. In that sense, they are titled as sons. And it is here in Deuteronomy 14 where I believe that this great name of Jehovah is further revealed. It, and this, we can pair actually this saying with one verse that we find in Isaiah 43:15, where we see that God created Israel. This is what it says. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. But see that the word in Hebrew for created is bara. This is extraordinary. Bara, a word when in the qual form is used only when God does the action and when he creates ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. But how can we understand that Israel was created out of nothing? We have her genealogy from Noah to Abraham. What was created in Israel is something new, an unconditional election by grace. This is what is so new. If her, elect, her election was based on her works, she would have never made it. When God chose Abraham and Israel, well, it was because he loved them and his choice was from then on unconditional. Here again, we can see the election by grace only. In the same way, Believers today are called new in our own rebirth, and it was not based on our past achievement. It's only out of grace, out of love of God. When God say, saved us, it is not because he saw something great in us. It is simply because, again, he loves us. Today, his desire is to choose really everyone who desire it. We, we read in John 3.16 these great words, For God, soul of the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have ever, everlasting life. As it is with Israel, he does not say that God so loved the world because we are so good. He simply does love us as a father does love his children. This is what is behind the word bara, a new creation in him. The word bara differs from the other word. There's another word called, uh, in, in Hebrew, it's yasar. Yasar means to fashion, to fashion out something already existing, which would have been more appropriate for the birth of the nation of Israel, because we know that Israel did not appear out of nowhere. In fact, 
you have these two words together in Isaiah 43.1, which says, But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he formed you, O Israel. Yes, sir, it's translated formed you, and you have the word bara. Why then use the word bara? It is proportionate to the great and new task that the nation was called to accomplish, something that was never seen before from whom salvation will come to all the nations and from whom the Messiah will come. And so bara is actually a most appropriate word, of course. So this word shows us that this is a new creation, which the particularity that her existence is unconditional. That is, no matter what happens, Israel will always be. You know, I find it extraordinary that, that the scriptures uses actually the word bara for the formation of Israel. And this just shows us that this relation is not one that is subject to change or to be altered. The Jews are the children of God. And for us also, we can say that when God creates, he creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. But we have to be willing to, to, to be nothing and give him all our being so he can fashion us according to his will. And the new title... The new title, Children of Jehovah Elohim, also conveys a great miracle, of course, of creation. We remember in the burning bush, when God spoke of this name, his name, he told Moses in Exodus 6.3 that his name actually was not known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when in fact it was. See what it says. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Lord... I was not known to them. What, what, what does that mean? Th that he didn't know, they did not know him? They knew of the name. They heard of it. But they never, the question, the, the point is that they never saw it put in action. Just like in the Exodus where his name reveals this great connection between God and Israel. They knew the name, but they never saw the intimacy and the relationship to the entire nation. And it is here in Deuteronomy where this name takes on a whole new meaning and this new relationship where God now dwells with men and becomes their teacher and protector. Now, like every Jewish event and every good Jewish book, food always plays some important role. In verse 3, we, in verse three we've come to the kosher and non-kosher section of this chapter. We recently examined from our study in the book of Leviticus laws concerning kosher and non-kosher food. I would like to take this moment to review some important points, uh, you know, as we have them again here in Deuteronomy. And so this is where God orders Israel to eat some food and not others. And the question we ask is why did he give such a command to Israel? Why did he not give it this why did he not give this command to the nations before the birth of Israel? Furthermore, why did he not give it to all Jews, but gave it to Moses and the rest, but not to Abraham, not to Isaac, not to Jacob? And one other question Are we under these laws today? Let us try to find out the reason behind these laws. First let us define the word kasher or kosher. Kosher is, the, is derived from the Hebrew word kasher, which means pure, proper. It is found in Esther 8.5 and translated 
something that is proper. Today, this is a very well-known word in the Jewish community. If you go to a Jewish area in Montreal, for instance, and enter a grocery store like IGA or Provigo, they, they would have a kosher section where foods that, with food are certified as kosher and sold. You will see the sign like Montreal Kosher. Okay, for it stands, I heard, from Montreal Kosher MK. And of course, you have the famous Montreal Kosher Bagels, known around the world. I remember the advertisement in the 80s, which says you don't have to be Jewish to eat bagels. So kosher then is a way of life in Orthodox Jewish homes. These usually characterized by food eaten and the way things are prepared. For instance, I'll just give you some example. When it comes to meat, all animals must be richly slaughtered by a shochet, someone certified by the religious leaders. The shochet uses the sharpest possible knife and to kill the animal in a way which causes the least amount of pain. And because of the command of Deuteronomy chapter 12, the blood is let out that is spilled on the ground. And in order to make sure that it is completely drained uh, from the meat, they added the they soak it that is in salt water for about half an hour before they, it can be prepared for eating. All this makes the meat kosher. But today, kosher food takes another turn. Rabbinical Judaism added and extrapolated dozens of other laws from those found here. But what does the law say in Deuteronomy, in the Torah? In this chapter, the animals are divided into, into three classes. Those which live on land, those which live in the water, and those which live in the air. Those that live in the land are given to us from verses 3 to 8. Next, in verses 9 to 10, we see those animals that live in the water, the fish. As for those that fly, after verse 11, we read, All clean birds you may eat, and a series of unclean fowl, and their kinds are mentioned up to verse 19, which also mention the creeping things. But then what does the modern reader is going to do with all these laws? How does this speak to us today? The reason behind these laws is simply not given in the Torah. Why this animal and why not the other? Uh, we're not told, and there are so many interpretations. The most famous one is the hygiene and health reason. But the idea behind the hygiene reason is, I want to tell you, fairly recent. It is attributed especially to Maimonides, a famous and influential rabbi from the 12th century who was also a physician. He came out with a list of diseases that are caused by unkosher animals. But this idea was particularly refuted by another medieval rabbi, Arbabanel, in the fifth, 15th century, who rejected a more, the more general idea. He summed it up for us in one of his writings. This is what he wrote. Why is eating all these animals forbidden in the first place? It cannot be for health reasons, since we see all the other peoples eating them and without apparent risk to their health and some animals that are actually poisonous to eat are not included here. He's right. Actually, consider the Olympics. If the majority was right in believing that these laws are primarily for health reasons, then we, we would 
we, we should have expected the Jews to get all the gold medals, but they got, I think, only a few. It is true that there are some diseases associated with the unclean animals, but there are others which are associated with the clean ones as well. And if it is for health reasons, why are they not given to the other nations of the world, and, but only to Israel? While Noah knew how to make a distinction between clean and unclean animals, no dietary laws were given to him. God told him in Genesis chapter 9, verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. If they were good for Noah and all other Gentiles, why are they no good for Israel? What's the point in there? Where then can we find the answer to our question which says, why were the Israelites allowed to eat only certain animals and why the unclean animals had so much influence over the way they lived? In the overall, one will see that these laws had a purpose of isolating the Israelites from their neighboring Canaanites until such point that they will be well-trained so that they could go and proclaim the holiness and glory of God. It was like a training session for them. And let us not forget that the Israelites were to be separated not because they are better, but because they were the same. They were human beings, also sinners, just like it is for the believers today. So these laws forbid the Israelites to eat or fellowship with the idolatrous nations around them who had no restrictions until the time Israel would be well trained to be the priestly nation. But see how the Lord qualifies these forbidden foods, by the way. There is one word that is used that we can look into which will help us to further go into understanding. See the opening statement from where all these laws flow. It's in verse 3. You shall not eat any detestable thing. What is, what is meant by detestable? And how are these things detestable? The word is torba, which means abominable. And this is used primarily in reference to idolatry, sinful acts, or acts of perversion, especially done by the Canaanites, which suggest a link with Israel's neighbor. It comes from the word tab, which means to abhor, to detest. In the ritual sense, or in an ethical sense as well. So in Deuteronomy, this word is used 17 times, often describing the manners of the Canaanites. So the point is that these forbidden meats were given so that Israel will not mingle with idolatrous nations. Let me ask you a question. How far would your friendship go with someone who does not eat the food that you're eating? Or would you be friend with someone who is so different than yourself and is so regulated by, by the way he eats, the way he's dressed, the way he be behaves? People gather with those who are similar. God made the Jews exclusive just as he is exclusive. He is not exclusive to sin, but inclusive to all who want to live that sinful past and join into his family. The whole idea was to separate Israel from sins. This, I believe, is the main point. When we come back together, we will see the, the, the rest, the passages that is that we find in the New Testament that would explain this principle, that the principle of being sanctified. May the Lord bless you. Hallelujah, Adonai, 